got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 should be fairly easy to find. Genesis chapter 1. So uh, this morning we're starting a new series. Um, you know, originally we were going to go through the, the gospel of Matthew, but we're going to push that back a little bit. Um, we're we're going to go through a series just talking about what do, what do we believe? What are some, just the basic core tenets of the Christian faith? What do we believe and what do we hold to as non-negotiables, right? Um, and, and here's the thing, it's good to be refreshed on these things from time to time. I know that many of you, maybe you've, you've sat in church for a long time, maybe you, you're familiar with the scriptures and you're like, I already got all this figured out, like this is basic kind of elementary sort of things. But, but I think for each and every one of us as believers, it's important for us to, to kind of be refreshed, right? To, to sort of look at this and go, okay, yeah, these are the basic sort of tenets of our faith and what we believe. Because it's really easy, um, if we're honest, um, to squabble over differences or differences of opinion, um, all those sorts of ideas. But the reality is, let's get down to, like, what are, what are some non-negotiables we have as believers that we hold to? And so just this idea, let's be refreshed on this over the next several weeks. And so this morning, we're going to unpack who is God, which is a very daunting sort of task. We don't have, we, we have a... We have like a Sunday where we're going to talk about God the Creator, and then we'll move to Jesus and the Holy Spirit over the next couple of weeks. But we could spend multiple Sundays on this particular topic, and so we're going to try to all condense it down to about 30 minutes here on a Sunday morning. So we'll see how it goes. But if you're there in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 2 and then verse 26 this morning. So if you're there with me and if you're able, please stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Skip down to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the livestock of the whole earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created, he, he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. But Father, we pray that as we open your word that you'd speak to us, you would challenge us. We would see this passage and unpack what it means for you as our creator to serve you and follow you. Jesus, we love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. If you read the Apostles' Creed, which is a very ancient, old creed that the early church would recite, it starts off by saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. For, for the Apostles' Creed, this was the first sort of tenet that they said, hey, we believe this. 
And as believers, as Christians, we affirm, right, the same thing today. That's how the Scriptures start out. That's how Genesis starts out. The very first words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Which is really not a controversial idea at all in our day and age, right? Just joking. It, it, it is a little bit. Like that's, that's, that's a pretty loaded statement. And there's a lot of layers in there that we could unpack. But in the beginning, there was God. And God created the heavens and the earth. But we're, we're introduced to this character. We're introduced to this God, this divine being in the beginning who speaks everything into existence, who calls order into chaos. And so here's something to think about as we unpack this idea of who is God. If you went and asked people in our culture, if you went and asked people around Allen, or you went and walked around Ada for a little bit and asked people, or went up to Oakland, wherever you, you just went around and you asked people, what do you believe about God? We, we kind of got to do this uh, a couple years ago, I think it was pre, yeah, pre-COVID, took a group of students on a mission trip to New York City, and we did some surveys. And we said, hey, what do, you, what do you think about God? Like, who do you think God is? And you can imagine in a place like New York City, uh, we got multiple different answers, multitudes of different responses and different answers of who is God. And in many ways, we would get some different responses today in our day and age. What do we believe about God and what does he want with human beings? What, what, what is his desire for us as his creation? A.W. Tozer says this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What does this mean? This means whatever we believe God to be, right, is ultimately going to drive how we respond to God. Whatever we believe or whoever we believe God to be, the nature of who God is, will drive our response to God. Because in many ways, there's, there's a few different beliefs about God out there, just in a general sort of sense, that we could sum up a lot of the different ones, right? There's a belief that God is real, but He's distant. He's distant. He, he's somewhere out there. He's not here. Uh, the, the, and there are people that believe this. They're often called just theists or deists. They, they believe, yeah, there's an intelligent design. There's, there's this sort of beautiful mind, if you will, behind the universe and its creation and all those things. But whoever that God is, he is somewhere out there. He just created the world and the universe, and he's kind of just letting it run. He's not really involved with the day-to-day activity of his creation. He's, he's just not. He's somewhere else out there. He's distant. Or some people might describe God in more of an abstract way. Like you can't really fully know God. He's some sort of impersonal force. This description of God is like vague or kind of mystical. It's, it sounds like when people talk about this sort of idea of God, they're, just, they're talking about it like they're describing the force in Star Wars, Right? Like, like I, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I still don't really know what the Force is. That's how some people kind of approach God. Now, is there some mystery to the nature of God? Absolutely. We're about to talk about the Trinity here in a moment. There's definitely some mystery to the nature of who God is. But Scripture doesn't present us an abstract God or a distant God. Maybe there's a buffet sort of approach to God. We take different beliefs about God and we sort of pick and choose how we want to believe in God and what we want Him to look like. And eventually we kind of fashion a God in our own image. Right? We like the idea of a God who's loving, but the idea of a God who will judge 
We don't really like. So we kind of leave that on the buffet and we take the God who's a God of love. We love the idea of God who is forgiving and we'll take that, but maybe we'll leave the whole, you know, hey, God is a God who holds us accountable for our actions and for our sin. Like sometimes we'll take this buffet approach and we'll think that we can pick and choose. And again, if we're not careful, what we find at the end of that is a God that's not fashioned in the image of the God that's revealed to us in Scripture, but we find a God who's fashioned instead in our own image, in our own making, in our own choosing. And so here's what Genesis does. Genesis gives a very specific account of the nature of God. And so we're going to see two points this morning about the nature of God. The first point, if you're taking notes, is God is the Creator. God is the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our, 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 our basic confession is all life, all existence, everything that we see and know exists because God spoke it into existence. All life, everything finds its origin and its place and its purpose in God because God is the one who created this world and created you and I as human beings to live and to dwell in it. That's the reason it's so vital that when we try to find purpose, when we try to find satisfaction in our life, when we try to find joy and peace and happiness and all those things that we long for as human beings, that we have to realize the only way we can find that is in our Creator, the one who has created us. When we learn to follow our Creator and live the way that He's designed us to live, that's where we find true fulfillment and joy because we're living by the design that God has created us to live by. No longer following our sinful nature, but instead following the Lord. Um, my, so my Jeep is still in the, the shop. I got hit. I, I say I got hit. A school bus got back, backed up into me at False Creek and uh, like put a huge hole in the door. It's, it, was, it was ugly. And it's been there for like over a month and a half, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, like, and they still text me like, Hey, the door, we're still waiting for the door. The door hasn't come in, right? The door hasn't come in. Now, now, here's the thing. The reason they're waiting so long for this door is because they can't just put any old door on my Jeep, right? They can't go get a door from, I don't know, a Chevy pickup and put it on my Jeep. Would it maybe work? I'm not a, I'm not a mechanic or a person that understands those things, but I don't know. I feel like it maybe would work a little bit, right? It may get the job done. It may protect me a little bit, but, but here's the thing. It's ultimately not going to be what fits, right? It's not going to be ultimately what is part of my Jeep. Now, what, what am I trying to explain here? When we try to live and we try to put things in our lives that, and live in a way that we aren't designed or created to live, we, we might get by for a season. We might find fleeting moments of happiness. But at the end of the day, when we try to live in a way or we try to put things in our lives that don't belong it just won't be quite right. There will always be something that will just be off or won't work fully the way it was intended to or designed to. The only way that we find true purpose, true peace, true satisfaction is in our Creator. If God's the Creator, it also signifies authority. If God is truly the Creator of all things, then He has authority over all things. 
If we truly believe that God's the one who created this world and designed it in such a way and created you and I as human beings in His image to design and function in a particular way, that means He has authority over the way that we should live our lives because He knows how we're purposed to live in the first place. It's often our own arrogance and pridefulness as human beings. We see this in, right in Adam and Eve. Just a couple chapters over. What do they decide to do? They decide that instead of serving God's purpose for their lives, they're going to serve their own purpose for their lives. Instead of submitting to God's authority and God's rule because He's the one who created them to be there and to rule, and to instead of doing that, they're instead going to serve their own selfish desires. They felt like they had enough right to be the own, their, their own authority of their lives. But this is a God who has authority. It also signifies God's power. God's power. I mean, God just speaks into existence light. Speaks into existence all of reality. And in a lot of ways, it kind of runs against the grain of a lot of other ancient sort of Near East stories. The ancient Israelites, they would have been pretty familiar with the creation stories of the Egyptians, the Amorites, Sumerians. A lot of stories even predated Moses' writing of Genesis. I mean, a lot of scholars believe that Genesis was being written while the, while the Israelites were being rescued out of Egypt as they were on their way to the promised land. God's revealing to Moses and reminding the people, hey, this is where you come from. Not the Egyptian creation story, not the Mesopotamian or the Babylonian creation story, but this is where you come from. This is who your creator is. And even today, we still have some of these ancient stories. Like the Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh, it describes the creation of the earth and the heavens by other gods. The ancient people even had a story similar to the flood. And the thing is, it's important to understand that just because we have these stories doesn't mean that the Genesis account is wrong, but it's a reminder to God's people and to the rest of humanity, this is really where you came from. There's several Egyptian even creation stories and all the basic storylines are pretty similar, that before creation there was nothing but a dark, sort of watery abyss of chaos. And then out of these waters arose an Egyptian god and another other Egyptian god. There's always fights between the gods. There's always like this sort of huge battle that goes on for the gods to bring order to this chaos. Like it's sort of like a bloodbath before the creation of the world. But the uniqueness of Genesis is we see a god there's not a battle, there's not a fight. Because it, it, we kind of ignore this language here, but it says the earth was what? Formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The, 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 the writer of Genesis, Moses, is trying to give the picture here of chaos. The world was sort of chaotic. And what does God do to bring order to the chaos? He simply speaks over it through the power of His Spirit Hovering over the waters, he brings order to the chaos. There's not a major battle. There's not opposing forces in this story. It's just simply God speaking into existence order where there is chaos. It's also important to understand that God as our creator, that this is a free act of creation. What do I mean by that? In other words, God freely chose to create the universe and everything that's in it, including you and I as human beings. God didn't have to create this universe. God didn't have to create the world. God didn't have to do all the things and put all these things in place that we see. God didn't have to do any of that. This is a free 
act of creation, not because God had to, but because God wants to. Now, why is that? Why is it that God speaks everything into existence? Well, let's go to point number two. Point number two that we see is this God is relational. This God is relational. Now, now it's important for us immediately our minds not to jump to, well, he's relational in the sense that he has a relationship with human beings, because you'll notice in Genesis when God begins to create, he says God created the heavens and the earth. We're, we're introduced to God. But then it also says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then we're even introduced to God's Word that speaks light into existence. In G- verse 26, 27 of Genesis, it says, Let us make mankind in, what, our image. And so we're, we're already given some hints. Well, there's something about this God that's unique, but also there's, there's something else going on here. There, there's two different forces sort of at work, two different persons sort of at work in this creation account. The Spirit of God is present, but also the Word of God is present. And if we're familiar with our New Testaments, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14 unpacks this idea for us. It says, in the beginning was what? The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, John says, This word has become flesh and has dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory in the person of Jesus. So we realize that John's saying, Hey, in the beginning was the word. Well, what do we see God using and, and moving his creative power through? We see him moving that through his word, the word. Colossians 1 15 through 17, Paul says, Jesus is the visible image of of the invisible God. All things were created through Him, for Him, by Him. It sounds a lot like Jesus is this word here in the beginning of Genesis that all of creation, the creative force and power of God, the triune God speaking into existence. We see in Genesis 1 that God creates through His word and He creates through its spirit. Here's the thing, as Christians, we believe in something called the Trinity. Now, you won't find the word Trinity in your Bibles anywhere, but the implications, the ideas, and the the, the belief of the Trinity is all throughout the pages of Scripture. And basically, it's this, that we believe in one God who is three persons. There's one and only one true living God. And yet, this one God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Spirit. These three persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. Each person is fully and completely God, yet they're distinct and they're different in their uniqueness and their unity. Even in the Great Commission, it's kind of a blink and you'll miss it moment in Matthew chapter 28, but it says Jesus commands his followers to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I was like, is that just like a misprint, right? Like, is that just... No, I mean, there, there, there's one name, but this name is yet three. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What we believe as Christians is that in eternity past, before God even laid the foundations of the world, God has eternally existed as one God, yet made up of three persons, all equally God, all equally powerful in attributes of being God. This perfect, unifying, loving relationship. Now, 
Like I said earlier, does the Trinity make complete and full sense to us as believers today? 100%, right? No, it doesn't. It's confusing. And, and here's the thing, is, is a lot of people have tried to use analogies to explain it over the years, and those even fall short. And if you're not careful, some of them will lead you into heretical understandings of the Trinity. So the thing is, we can't fully comprehend this, that there's this one God, but yet He exists in three persons. They're one, yet three. They exist eternally in this eternal relationship of love and unity towards one another. But we can understand some implications from this. Here's the first implication we can understand from this, is that God is a God who is love. He is a God that is loving. Not be, God is loving because it's already in His nature as a relational God. The Trinity is the fullest picture of perfect love and unity between these three persons. God had all His needs met in this Trinity before the creation of the world. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. He didn't create human beings because he needed somebody to hang out with. The reason that he creates you and I as human beings in his image is because he wants to extend this love and this unity of this triune God to the rest of human existence. This is a God who is a God of love and ultimately too is a God who is relational. God exists in this perfect relationship of the Trinity. God extends that relationship to us. And ultimately, He wires us for relationships. Each and every one of us are, are wired for relationships. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, we're wired for connection. We want to belong. We want to be a part. We, need, we want people in our lives that we love and that we care for. If you go and look at, you know, and you can, you can Google this and read this, but often when you read people's, um, I guess, deathbed sort of confessions, the things that they regret the most in their life as they're getting ready to die, often you're not going to hear people say, man, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. I wish I would have spent more time getting frustrated about OU losing to Kansas State, right? Right? Like, you, you don't see a lot of those. Man, I wish, my favorite, I, wish, I wish my favorite sports team would have won more championships. Often what you hear people say is, I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. I wish I would have spent more time with my spouse. I wish I would have spent more time with my friends. I wish I would have spent more time with my parents. I wish I would have spent more time with those I love. But why, why is that? I mean, you think about it. When you're at a place where you're getting ready to die, everything's laid bare and the real you is there. The things that matter most are automatically coming to the surface. And ultimately, what matters most to many is they lie on their deathbed thinking about the things they regret most in life. It's that they didn't put enough time and energy into the relationships they cared about in their life. That's interesting that that's part of our human nature. And why is it part of our human nature? Because we're created in the image of a God who is relational. We're created in the image of a God who is relational. And those relationships and that fulfillment is found in a relationship with this God, but also in a relationship with others in community. And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks, talking about what does it mean to be the church and be a community of believers. So as we close, here's a couple things I want us to take with us. The first is that since God, again, is creator, 
Be reminded all life, all purpose comes from Him. Because God is relational, all love and fulfillment comes from a connection with this God. And it also comes from a connection with others in unity. There's some things that we don't understand about the nature of the Trinity. But as we're going to see next week as we talk about the person of Jesus, we don't, still, we don't serve a God who's abstract and somewhere out there. We serve a God who's very real and very personal and desires for you and I as human beings to be connected back to their Creator and be connected in relationships with others in the community that we call the church. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll have a time of response. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Here's what I want you to invite you to think about as we prepare to respond together. First thing is this. Where do you try to find your fulfillment and your satisfaction in life? Are you trying to find that in a relationship with God, or are you trying to find that in stuff and things? May, may we be reminded that our only fulfillment, our only hope is in the person of Jesus, a relationship with the God, the creator of all things, including you and me. So as we respond, there's three ways you can respond. Maybe you need to know Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't have a relationship with this Creator because you're still separated because of your sin. Maybe you need to come down, and I'd love to walk through that decision with you. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've never been baptized. You need to follow through on that commitment, that first step of obedience to the Lord. Maybe you need to join this church and commit to a body of believers. I'd invite you, is that when I say amen and we stand, you respond however the Spirit leads you to respond. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word.